0: you're tuning in to the tv campfire with caitlin mcfarland and emily gibson co-founders and co-executive directors of atx television festival aka tv camp for grown-ups this episode is part of our series of special releases
1: recorded live at atx season seven to hear our original the tv campfire series please scroll down to episodes one through five
0: New Year. We're back for a smore special release, and we brought some badass ladies with us. Yeah, we did. But first, a little context. Sci-fi has a new series coming out called Deadly Class, and it's based on a graphic novel from Rick Remender and Wes Craig, and it officially premieres Wednesday, January
1: 16th. I'm very much here for the motorcycle-riding teen assassin, played by Laura Jean Covey.
0: You know that's not exactly… you know what? Never mind. I'm not going to spoil it for you. We are so excited to be partnering with Sci-Fi on a deadly class premiere screening event here in Austin. But for those of you who aren't with us, we also wanted to share some sci-fi love with this special release from
1: ATX Season 7. The panel conversation is called Women Who Defy, and it happens to be one of our favorites.
0: I mean, come on, you've got Winona Earp showrunner Emily Andrus, the magician showrunner Sarah Gamble, Roswell New Mexico showrunner Karina McKenzie, Impulse Star Maddie Hassan, and Sci-Fi Fangirl's founding editor Cher Martinetti all talking about amazing female characters and narratives that are currently dominating the sci-fi genre and our personal watch lists.
1: They were honestly even cooler than we expected, and that bar was
0: pretty high. From showrunners to showstoppers, these women are bringing empowered, vulnerable, complex characters into the world of sci-fi and fantasy. We can't wait for y'all to hear from
1: them as they talk about defying expectations, the evolution of the genre, and female representation in the industry. So What are you waiting for? Pull up a log and settle in for Women Who Defy, presented by Sci-Fi. And don't forget to tune into Deadly Class on January 16th for more badass women on the small screen.
2: Hi guys. Thank you for being here. You could totally be out boozy brunching right now, but you're here. Sorry you're not boozy. I mean, we could have been. How are you? So I am the managing editor of Sci-Fi Wire's Fangirls. Um, If you don't know what that is, I will forgive it this time only. We are the female-focused vertical of Sci-Fi Wire, and our goal is to celebrate female fandom and women in genre, both behind the camera, and in front of the camera, and uh, obviously celebrate the stories that we all love, which makes sense that we're here today to celebrate some women that are instrumental in creating those stories and bringing them to life. So I guess you really want them to come out, right? Because you're like, you're nice, but shut up and bring the people we came to see out. So joining us today, we have from a little show called Winona Earp. (laughs) Yes, clap for her, Emily Andras. From another really tiny show, The Magicians, and the upcoming you, we have Sarah Gamble. (laughs) From Roswell and uh, New Mexico, is that right? Karina McKenzie. Oh, whatever. Roswell, New Mexico. Roswell and New Mexico. You could be from two. It's all right. (laughs) And joining us from Impulse, we have Maddie Hassan. Ladies, how are you? Oh, yeah, put your mics on. It took me like a second. Super They told us backstage, (laughs) like, just turn it on like you would a regular mic. And, of course, I was like, I don't know how to turn the mic on. This is how we do it in the writer's room. So So, me acting cool really worked. Um, So the first thing, obviously, since we're talking about science fiction and fantasy, what was the first property you remember falling in love with as fans?
3: Star Trek. Oh, nice. It's actually my first memory of human life is sitting on my dad's lap and watching a guy with pointy ears on the TV. So I feel like I didn't even really have a choice in the matter. My dad just decided I would be a science fiction fan. So I'm grateful.
4: Weirdly enough, I'm not like a huge... I don't consider myself to be a huge science fiction person. Get off the stage. I I know, I know, right? So I'm just doing a show about aliens. But I think that the, the first show that I watched that was science fiction was... The original roswell like i'm not just i I think that's true the first one that i fell in love with has like a fan like the first genre thing that i really loved and like watched episodes over and over again was supernatural for sure and i still i mean it's on season 47 and i'm still (laughs) watching it so (laughs)
2: what what do you think really quick and i'm gonna let you answer but what do you think is going to have more seasons supernatural or dancing with the stars
4: I mean, supernatural. definitely supernatural. <laughs> except now, I want the supernatural guys to go on Dancing with the Stars, and I, I know, I have do a whole you like a crossover. Thing that'd be in my amazing. Head. <laughs>
2: Emily, first thing you fell in love with?
5: Uh, I was just going to say the first show that really kind of blew my mind um, and taught me what you could do with mixing genres of fantasy was Twin Peaks for me. I remember watching, yeah, good. Uh, I remember watching that show and being like, the end is just like traffic lights swaying and it's like the most eerie thing ever. And I'm like, you can do this? That's amazing. So that was really the show that I was like, I want to write weird stuff. So mission accomplished.
2: Maddie...
6: Um, I loved Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I loved Buffy, and I love Joss Whedon. I think he's just a genius. So,
2: so if they ever decided to do like another like a reboot of Buffy, <sighs>
6: <laughs> don't talk about it.
2: Would you want to be Buffy?
6: No, it's too much. It's only Sarah Michelle Gellar. Oh. Nobody. It would just be yeah. fucked up. Am I There's allowed to reboots? swear? <laughs> okay. Tell I us about so. reboots.
4: Reboots things. are a it's lot of stress. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure involved. <laughs> I was telling this story at the story on the panel yesterday. I literally was walking down the street in Austin yesterday and somebody yelled from across the street, don't touch Roswell. And I, was like, I already touched it like a lot. <laughs>
2: So what was the moment that you knew that you wanted to actually create something in this space? Was it the shows that you
3: mentioned or? Take a moment. It was a very intense question. Um, a moment I, I think for me, it was when I was watching Six Feet Under, actually. A little later in my life. That's when it really occurred to me that you could do anything on TV. Because that show sort of promised to be a family drama, but it was like a completely different genre every week to me. Um, and they, they could really do whatever they wanted with those characters. So I guess it was sort of the advent of that era on HBO, the sort of first wave of quote unquote prestige TV, that you know I wanted to do that, but I always sort of wanted to apply it to fantasy and science fiction.
4: I am, um, like growing up, I was a fan of very sort of like quiet character dramas. I watched Felicity and Dawson's Creek and all of those, you know. Gilmore Girls, Um, which, like, I love. But then when I sort of got my foot in the door as a writer, it was on the originals. And even before that, when I was a journalist, before I was a TV writer, and and even before that, like, you get this taste of what a genre fandom feels like. And it's like crack. (laughs) It's, it's, genre fans are so intense and so dedicated and so passionate um, and so involved. I was talking about this yesterday, but it's like, when the CW wasn't like marketing the originals, the fans were, they were making posters and videos and trailers that were cooler than anything we were actually putting out. And feeling that sort of groundswell of support behind you is very intoxicating. It's, it's, it's scary, it, you know, it's a lot of pressure because genre fans are uh, discerning, they're not easily pleased and, and good don't. looking, yeah. so good looking. Also that. Yeah. <laughs> They're, they're very discerning, so you don't want to let them down, but they also, like, when they have your back, they have your back.
5: <laughs> and that never changes. They never stop having your back.
2: <laughs> yeah, Urpers are very, very, very subdued as a fandom.
5: They're very subdued. <laughs> very subdued. <laughs> no. Um Sort of similar for me, like I had done a lot of teenage shows and uh, young adults, like you can't work in Canada unless you've been under grassy. it's like actually like <laughs> in the government, it's like legal. Um, so I got brought on very luckily, I got recruited on a show called Lost Girl, which was super fun. Um, and I had never really seen a lot of female driven genre, to be completely honest, Buffy aside, but Lost Girl was like so insane, it had a bisexual lead. It was nuts. There were fairies. There were demons. Um, It's crazy. Talk about prestige TV. Um, No, but um, honestly, 10 seconds on that show, I was like, you can do every type of storytelling here. And also, like, the truth about genre is, even though there are fairies and demons and succubi, you can also, because it's an inhuman world, I think you can talk a lot about the human condition, right? Which Star Trek is famous for. Like, you can talk about human issues and life and death and free will and... uh, who they should sleep with this week as well. Um, But I was just addicted. I thought genre was actually a space to do all sorts of different types of storytelling, so I was like, I'm never leaving.
2: So jumping off that, I was actually going to ask this a couple questions later, but I'll ask it now. Um, One of the things, like you just mentioned, that I love about science fiction and fantasy is that it gives you the opportunity to have conversations that maybe people are not ready to have Mm -hmm. in their real lives. So do you, as creatives how does that shape the stories that you're telling? Like, do you find ways to kind of interject or inject um, really important topical issues that maybe you wouldn't be able to otherwise?
5: Like, do you trick people? Yes, all the time. Yes.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, my, my whole, when, I, when, when the CW called me and was like, what do you think about Roswell? I was like, I don't want to write teen supernatural romance right now. I was, I'm super politically active. I'm like, all I think about is what's happening in the news. And um, it was hard for me to imagine, like, after five years on the originals, continuing to sort of, like, write supernatural kissing. And um, so I went in, I was like, all right. And I went in, and I pitched a... A version of this story that like could only happen right now could only happen in 2018 and essentially it's a story about what would happen if aliens were discovered in trump's america right now in the middle of the country in a super conservative small town so it's a thousand percent a a, you know a metaphor for everything that's going on it's a metal metaphor for illegal immigration, it's a metaphor for Islamophobia. It's like we're just up to our elbows and everything that I wanted to talk about and we're doing it in this like really pretty cool way with magical powers and like a UFO crash that looks awesome and like good looking people almost kissing all the time. That guy was wrong, I'm so Great. glad
5: you touched it. I'm so glad you're touching it, it sounds amazing.
3: I'm going to watch the shit out of that. That sounds so
4: fucking good. I didn't think the CW was going to take my pitch. Like, I was fully expecting them to be like, okay, thank you so much. We're going to find somebody who wants to write a teen supernatural romance. And they bought, to to their credit, they bought the, the pitch at the table. Like, they didn't get up and walk away and discuss it. They were just like, we're doing this. Let's go. And ever since they've been super supportive of all of those angles, they haven't asked me to pull back. They haven't been scared. I mean, the... In the testing for the pilot, they said, you know, people turn their dials down when you start talking about illegal immigration. And they t- told me that on the marketing call. And then they're like, but we don't care. Keep going. And so I feel really supported. I feel really like, you know, this, this little network that I feel like is known for superhero shows and Gossip Girl is, is like really has my back about what I'm trying to say and what I'm trying to do with the project. So it's really cool.
2: And they're f- aliens
4: and they're hot, so it's great.
2: <laughs> do you feel right now, as creatives, that um, it's difficult to separate and like not be political in your work? And do you also feel a responsibility to be political in your work?
3: I've never tried to really separate it. I don't go out of my way to be political or apolitical. I just write about what I care about, and so I mean. With the magicians, the way that that's translated is, the, the, the season that we're writing right now, we start filming on Monday, season four. Um, yeah, Very stoked. It's really about the rise of fascism because that's what we're talking about in the writer's room because people check Twitter on their way into the writer's room and currently our culture is experiencing a wave of very modern, very American authoritarianism. And I think just being humans, being I think we become writers because we want to explore and decipher and figure out why things are happening in the world around us. And uh, as she said, on a show like The Magicians, we just get to do it and have fun at the same time. You won't feel like you're taking medicine. You won't feel like anyone is preaching to you. We're not particularly trying to convert anyone. We're just translating what we're thinking about and what we're feeling through the lenses of our characters.
2: Maddie, how about for you as an actor? Do you... Feel that, that you need to separate any type of political ideology from any of the roles that you take, or do you find it like you have to struggle with that at all, or do you feel responsibility to try to find roles like that?
6: Um, I take the roles that I'm given, <laughs> and I do with yeah. the material what they ask of me. But I think what's great about science fiction is when you have this veil of fantasy it makes it makes these very real issues easier to digest in a way like our show deals very, very directly with sexual assault. My character, Henry, is assaulted in the first episode, and that's the moment that she realizes she can teleport, and she crushes her assailant's body with a car, and he becomes a paraplegic. So those two things are forever linked and mirrored. I love this show. I know. <laughs> our, it sounds like porn. Your character like porn is amazing, me. and it is our hero. I have chills. <laughs> Lauren LaFranc, our show creator, I think is a genius, and honestly, she should... Be up here instead of me. I don't know why. It's me. Um, but I think it it does it in an interesting way. And because it's in this fantasy world, it makes it easier to, to learn from and to not feel like you're taking medicine like in a regular, you know, hard hitting drama. Because it's still drama, it's still real people. It's just sprinkled with something it makes it fun more palatable. to watch.
2: Yeah. yeah. Sarah. <clears throat> Hi. Hi. Last year, you were asked to describe the state of sci-fi and fantasy in three words, in which you said, it's dark as fuck. <laughs> because you did add that real life is dark as fuck. Yeah. So as creatives, how much does the current state of the real world impact the kinds of projects you find yourselves drawn to? And do you mirror what's happening in the real world? Or do you try to like counter-program and maybe make something light and happy because it is dark as fuck?
3: I never really try to make things light and happy. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's fun to watch dark things. I think when you sort of plumb the darkness and you watch characters go through really difficult things, it can be really cathartic. And you can walk away from it feeling better than you did when you sat down. Uh, So I kind of look at it that way. That's my excuse anyway, because I like to write really dramatic shit. (laughs) Um, but things are still dark. Things are, ver- things are really dark this week on a personal level, I think, for all of us, right, if you've been following the news. And I think mirror is a really good word for it. I, I don't have much belief that television usually pushes the culture. I think there's a couple of notable exceptions, but for the most part, I don't think we're going to alter the course of the next presidential election with fictional television. But I do think we can hold a mirror up to what's happening. I do think that you can sort of channel surf and watch different shows through the lenses of different creators tackling the very same things. And I think that's helpful. I think it's important.
4: I also agree with you. I don't, you know, I don't have, I don't think like my little CW show is going to move the needle on the presidential election, but I think that it can make people who are currently feeling more marginalized and more alone than they've felt in a long time feel less marginalized and less alone and a little more understood. And I think that that's the goal. That's the, the ultimate, you know, prize is if you can, can make these communities that are currently feeling, that are currently despairing in a lot of ways and make them feel like they've got a place to go on Wednesday night at 9 p.m. that makes them feel a little less despair. Um, there's something to that, to, to saying, well, this is reflecting my world in a way that's palatable and a way that protect, makes me feel safe for a little while.
5: I, I do agree with that. I am Canadian, so I am <laughs> super <laughs> naive. We <laughs> don't even have microphones in Canada. This is amazing.
2: Um,
4: just like moose yeah, yeah, all yeah. the time.
6: <laughs>
5: um, I totally agree with that, but I would be perfectly happy if my show just encourages a generation of lesbian superheroes. I would be totally fine with that. Um, I, my show is crazy and funny, like everyone's show here, everyone is complicated, but Nona? I also think people are going through a tough time. I think it's okay to come home on Friday nights and watch something that makes you cheer and cry and feel better and feel like all my flawed characters with all their bullshit are still waking up every day and fighting because they don't have a choice. Like. I want you to feel represented, but I also feel like you can resist in whatever small way you want to. And it can be fun and inspire you, but um, yeah, it's totally naive, but like, I don't want you to feel bad at the end of my show. I want you to feel like, I want you to flip a car on some guy. I'm like, (laughs) um,
4: I sometimes want you to feel bad.
5: And I know we all, oh no, we all do, but I, I just am like, yeah, I don't know if we'll change things, but I'm so glad all this stuff exists because I think it does matter. When I think about the things that inspired me growing up, they really did shape me. So, like, if we can just shape some the next female president and the next one and the next one and the next one, I don't know, yeah, it's totally naive, but let's just try it. And also there's some demon hunting, so. Yes. <laughs> yes right? but like, necessary. what the hell? Like, go, I, want, I want all of it. So. You know,
6: I don't think it's naive. I think that film and TV, are, it's like the best way to have a conversation. Because yeah. it's the most entertaining way, and you have somebody's attention nonstop for 45 minutes or for two hours. You know what I mean? Mm. And so it's a, it's a really good way to have a conversation.
4: I think it's just so important to have women, you know, at the forefront of this this genre that's essentially has felt very male for a very long time. I mean, when I think about Star Trek, I think about my dad and I think about like, like my mom didn't sit and watch that with him. I did, <laughs> but like my, but he, that was like my, a dad show, you know? And I think that the, the fans that i see of genre tv now are largely women so why aren't the people behind the camera and the people at the top of the call sheet largely women um it was an i had an extraordinary experience shooting my pilot this year because i was used to working on a show that was mostly men behind the camera or like julie pleck uh was the showrunner of the originals but her number two was always a man, and that person was always more involved than she was because she has a fucking empire to run. <laughs> um, but, you know, Video Village was always very male. The set was always, always felt like a, a place where, you know, men thrived. And on my pilot, Video Village was like largely female. Um, it was, you know, we've got a, i I'm used to a show with two men as number one and number two on the call sheet. Our show is very much about a woman um, and her experience and it felt different. And I was surprised by how different it felt, but it felt different, it felt, you know, maybe it's just in the wake of me too, but it felt like a safer space. It felt like a softer space, a, a, like I a, um, um, I didn't feel like I had to be at 110% all of the time in order to, be, uh, to, to prove myself. I just didn't feel like I had to prove myself at all. Um, and it made a huge difference.
2: So, jumping off that, you know, this panel—we're all white women, and coming from—we're coming from a place of privilege, purely based on the color of our skin. What can we do to use our privilege to increase the number of women of color and black women that are creating TV, that are in front of the camera, that are playing leads? What are some things that you think that can be done to increase that?
4: Hire them and pay them well. <laughs>
2: yeah. Pass them oh, yeah. Yeah.
5: and listen to them.
4: Like you know, I—I think that. Anybody who's ever been in a writer's room, you know, you have writer's rooms where everybody's allowed to talk and and feel heard. And then there are some writer's rooms where it doesn't feel like everybody's heard. You have to listen to the people that you, you hire. You can't just, you know, stick colorful faces in there because it looks good in the team photo. Um, you've got to hear them and, and encourage them to speak uh, and shape the show to reflect their experiences, too. I mean, my show's about an illegal immigrant. I don't know what that feels like, so I've gotta listen to people.
2: Karina, I know you mentioned that uh, Julie Pleck, am I saying her last name right? Mm-hmm. Uh, had pretty much started as like a Twitter mutual mm-hmm. and ended up becoming pretty instrumental in your transition from a TV journalist. Super
4: instrumental, <laughs> like she was like, come on. <laughs> So, um, I have,
2: so I have a two-part question for everybody. First, in this current day and age, what kind of role does social media play, not necessarily when connecting to fans, but to connecting to peers and networking with other female creatives? Mm. And second, what are some things women can do to either seek out a female mentor or become one for other women in the interest, industry?
3: I have a fun story about that from the last, like, 72 hours. <laughs> okay. Did you guys see that thing on Twitter about the variety panel a night in the writer's room? Yes. So there was this, this panel that, it's Emmy season. I like to call it a night of dicks.
2: <laughs> <laughs> night of too many and, dicks.
3: Yes, and then. Sorry. Yep. I just <laughs> just, I'm just I'm gone. Like so so many that. things went <laughs> through my mind at the same time. I love yeah, these yeah, women. Yeah. And, and now the moment is gone. I made mean, it sound too good. I made mean, it sound too good. No, no. There was, anyway, there were five comedy writers, five drama writers, one woman, I think maybe one writer of color, um, and Twitter kind of exploded. A lot of female writers um, were... Was it Phillips? I said she yeah, like, a lot of people were just like, this seems wrong. My agent called me to say, this seems wrong. And Liz Hanna, who wrote the post, first she tweeted, are we just screaming into the void? And then about five minutes later, she was like, Fuck it. <laughs> I'll just do my own. And within 24 hours, she had put together a panel of, I think, 19 women showrunners, um, which will be live streamed, streamed next Wednesday um, via Twitter. It'll be at Twitter headquarters. And it just was a thing where it was so egregious. It was an oversight that I think it affected people the way it did because it whispered to us that there's a level of unconscious bias that we are hoping doesn't exist, but this seems to point to the existence of that bias.
5: Like several people looked at that list and no one said, "Should we get one vagina in here?" Like nobody did. Like it's it's. It's variety, wasn't it? It no. was, yeah. It was bright. And I was like,
2: I—that's yeah. what surprised me. And you that, know, like nobody yeah. said, oh,
5: just should we maybe? Yeah, so
3: yeah. there uh, were a
2: couple guys. Like I know Michael Scherr, I think was on that list, and he actually tweeted. And he has a pretty—they were
3: great. I mean, the great guy. guy. Yeah. I know a couple they're of those he's guys. He was like, and I'll fantastic. step down so someone uh-huh. that
2: is a woman can take my place on this panel.
3: And on a certain level, just as a showrunner, I always feel a slight bit ambivalent about panels like this. I mean, I'm privileged to be on this panel with these women because they are amazing. I hate the feeling of segregation. Mm -hmm. Because I always say, I am not handed my budget in lady dollars, and I do not get to shoot my day in lady hours. I am responsible for hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm responsible for hundreds of employees. My dick is just as big as theirs, (laughs) just as big as theirs. So. But when that happened, it made me realize this kind of representation matters. Representation like this with more faces of color also matters. Matters a lot. And, and so I was like, fuck it. I'm doing those. I'm doing the lady panels. Because yeah. we need them. And you guys need to see them. And your children need to see them. Yeah, right? So that they, and they, they know they, they can need them be
2: anymore. anything that is, they see on the stage right now. Yeah. They could be a TV journalist. They could be a showrunner. They could be an actress.
4: I think... Your dick is bigger than theirs, <laughs> because because you have to fight. We I have to fight this harder. Is gonna it's just true. Like I, I can't tell you like the number of times that like I would say what I wanted on set, you know, and I, I literally had a director. I was like, we 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 need this shot, and we're we're missing it. We're turning the cameras around before we before you know we've got the shot we need, and the director called me adorable, oh. and I was like. And that shit, that was like five years ago, that like lit a fire that has not died. And I'm, now I'm just like, get the fuck out of my way. And, but I, I think that you know there's stuff that no man in that position, no matter how new you were, or no matter how you know, inexperienced you were, no man would have been called adorable for saying they needed the shot they wanted. And by the way, we had to fucking go back and get the shot the next day. So everyone can suck my giant dick.
5: Yeah. <laughs>
2: This is already my favorite panel I've ever done.
4: (laughs) Good morning, Texas.
2: (laughs) It's not even noon. I don't even know how many dicks and fucks have been dropped.
3: (laughs) Dick swinging is a showrunner thing. Yeah, I'm so into this. It's not really gender related. It's not. Um, But jumping off the story you just told, can you
2: also recall a moment in your career when you felt someone misjudged or underestimated you because of your gender? And if so, how did you respond to that? we already know what karina is
4: (laughs) i actually like that's that's a story that where i like won but um i've been there was a there was a point where i was really shut down by a guy and i felt like it was a very misogynist moment and it was so egregious and i've worked with amazing men like i want to like sing the praises of michael narducci who was the original showrunner for four seasons like he was just a dream so I don't want to I don't want to be like shitting on people that that really did use their privilege to help me but um, I have been confronted with people who made my life really difficult because I was young and because I was a woman um, and said things to me that they would never say to somebody who wasn't a young woman and there have been times when it shut me up instead of lighting a fire there have been times where I went okay and I sat back and I look back at those. The episodes that were sort of that run in the writers room and I feel that my mark on them is missing Um, I feel that the women weren't represented in those episodes as much as they should have been because I went silent Mm -hmm. and so I am NOT gonna do that anymore
6: I have a story um, not about me personally but about another actress that I worked with Uh, we were on a show and she was getting ready to do this make-out scene, whatever, um, and she felt uncomfortable taking off her shirt. And one of the executives of the show, I'm not ever gonna name names, um, said, well, what's the point of your character if you're not gonna take your shirt off? And you think that shit doesn't happen anymore because, I mean, you know, it's 2018, but it it does. And there will be directors, I mean, I went on a general meeting like a year ago, not a general meeting, I, I, I had a meeting with a director and I'm married, I've been married for two and a half years, hi, yeah. congrats. Love you. <laughs> um, and I opened with that because you don't know yeah. what these guys are like, you just don't know, unfortunately. And he asked me for my number at the end and I was like, okay, cool, this means like I'm getting closer to the part and he wants to talk to me about the character, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, 10 o'clock rolls around, and he sends me a you up text. Mm -hmm. And I was like... Up for getting cast. And I said... (laughs) Yeah. The next morning, I said, oh, my God, we go to bed so early because I need a man to, you know, not get hit on by somebody who's in a higher position than me. And he then, you know, I heard, like, an hour later after sending that text that she didn't get the part, she looks too old. I'm twenty-three, by the way.
2: (laughs) You hag.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Twenty-three. You're ancient. I mean, this stuff happens. It happens all the time still. I mean, and also in the description of female characters, when you're a strong female character, you get called angsty. You get called bratty. You get called sassy. Never know she's beautiful.
5: Doesn't know she's beautiful, but she is. Doesn't know she's beautiful.
6: How do you play that?
5: Just uh
2: Homely oh. but pretty
6: anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's insane. And I'm like, I'm not angstry angsty. I'm I'm pissed off. Yeah. I'm angry and I it, it's gonna flip validated. Were you gonna say something, Sarah?
3: You look like you're ready to ask the next question. Uh, don't no. I, I'll no. wait for one of you to Well, I'm like, I want to know, tell was, my know, do. At, She's
2: like making comments yeah. off the mic that oh, I, I hear. No, 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 I no love it. it's funny. <laughs> I told you we don't it's have not, these in Canada. No. <laughs> So I'm like, I'll be like, I'm going to ask a question and then Emily says something and I'm trying not to laugh because it is funny. And then I'm like, fuck, what was I just going to say? I was um, just, like, no, no, no. Here's what I
3: was going to say. And then you just say something better. <laughs> oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think I am so grateful and excited that there is this focus on the way that women are treated in our industry among many, many others. And I think that's good. I think people in positions of power needed to wake up and a lot of really well-meaning, really responsible people that I work with who are primarily men really did wake up and asked a lot of questions. I don't know, take this with a grain of salt. If this helps you, it's my advice to you. I didn't really think about it when I was coming up. No. I expected it to be hard. Yeah. I expected people to underestimate me. I, ex- I kind of expected to be called adorable. Not that anyone ever should, Good. but they did. <laughs> I know how that feels. And I, I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking Although I was frequently the only woman in the writer's room, Mm -hmm. very frequently the only woman on set. I just didn't think, is this happening because of my gender? Is this happening because of my age? Is this happening because my script's not... Like, I... I, Because here's the deal. I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) I'm not going to stop writing. I'm not going to stop trying to put my voice out there. I'm not going to stop trying to create TV shows that people put on the air. And so... I just don't let it penetrate. Or I really try not to let it penetrate. I remember when I first became an executive producer, my mom called me. She is an immigrant who learned English when she came here. And she went back to college, and then medical school, and then residency, and now she's a psychiatrist. And she said, you have to think about this as residency. She's like, sit down and watch the first season of Grey's Anatomy again. They're fucking with you on purpose, that's what they do. They're not there to be nice. They're not there to make your lives easier. Just handle it, that's how you become a professional. And now she's a tough bitch from Eastern (laughs) Europe, just like her daughter, but that served me and it still serves me. I don't think it's ever okay to be mistreated and I'm excited that people are speaking up and I think the people around the mistreated need to be speaking up more, but I also think don't let this discourage you, like tell your story, you know?
2: what is and i'm kind of jumping but what is like the first example that you can remember of a really nuanced well-written female character whether it was in tv film that you instantly connected with or resonated with
5: um one character one character I always thought had like such an incredible introduction. And right away, you knew so exactly who she was, and she was so unexpected was Marion in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, there's just something so amazing that she's like doing this drinking contest and she looks so sweet and she's got her freckles, and she's in Nepal, I think. And then she's like, totally beats the guy. And you're just like, I know so much about this woman already, and I want to know everything else about her. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just remember being like, I'd never seen a female character introduced like that before, um, and it always stuck with me. And she was kind of a good example of, like, tough but vulnerable. Do you know what I mean? She was both things, and I, I, she felt like a real woman. And I was like, oh, my God, there's a person on TV. Um, <laughs>
7: uh,
5: I just always, like, very, I very much remember that.
4: There's so many. It's hard for me to think of like the first or, or a specific one because like I don't think there is a dearth of well-written female characters. I just think there are fewer female characters, well-written female characters than well-written male cal- characters right now. Um, and I think there always have been. That said, I can pick out characters from my childhood that I connected to. I can pick out characters from now that I think are phenomenal. Um, I also think you know one of the actresses Phoebe Tonkin on the originals said to me she's so great she's so she, she was so um, connected to the material and she really wanted the show to be as good as it could be and she said we were having lunch one day and she was like I'm so sick of people telling me that her character, Haley, and she said that she's going to be badass in this episode. She was like, if you guys as writers could just never use the word badass when you're telling me what's coming up for me ever again, that'd be Sarah great. Sarah gave me a lot of shit for that last year.
2: hearings. Really? In, in our panel. Well, it's just, I, I think I gave her- you, like
3: a nuanced <laughs> discussion right. about my ambivalent- I don't No, know. it was a great conversation. She was like, she was
4: basically saying that like, that's the word that gets used all the time as if all that she's looking for as an actress playing a character is an opportunity to like beat up a boy and it's not it's not about you know strength as as translated to literal physical power or strength as translated to anger or strength as translated to violence it's about you know you can have a, a female character that's weak as fuck and still have them be a great female character because we're not all strong all the time some of us aren't strong ever um and there's strength in that like there's 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 power and perseverance, um, despite being the the person who is, you know, maybe not the loudest or the angriest or the most powerful in the room.
6: Yeah, I think I agree with everything that you just said. Um, The female characters that I've loved the most and what I've realized as I've acted more and since playing my last character is the best characters are the characters that you just stay true to their emotional experience and don't try to make them likable for the sake of being likable. And that's a mistake that I think's made very often in female characters, young female characters, especially in young adult things. Um, so I agree. Everything that you just said was Can great. Can like, stop, like, with, with the word likable? I hate that word. Stop, I really like, stop it. You, but who I actually decides what's yeah. likable?
5: Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh. if you take your top off, you'd be real likable. Sounds like one. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't, like.
6: We would like, love you. We don't
5: all like the same people. Nobody, like, nobody,
4: like yeah. demands that every male character on TV be somebody you want to invite to a slumber party. Like.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what is the best piece of advice that you've ever gotten in your career?
3: Take the long view. That's probably... I mean, it takes a really long time just to get good at writing, even passively good. It's a supremely 10,000 hours kind of situation. So, uh, you know, it's hard, though. I'm not saying it's easy. When when there's a prospective opportunity in front of you, you get excited about it. But that's usually my mantra, is the long view.
5: Mine was... um And I use it all the time. Um, My female mentor, Michelle Loretta, who's amazing, she did Lost Girl and she's doing Killjoys, which you should all watch Friday nights, 10 p.m. on Sci-Fi. She says, and I love this so much, she says, do no harm, but take no shit. And that's the best thing. I think you can conduct yourself, you can't control how other people act, but like I can only control what I am and like, you know, I, the best thing, uh, you know, she kind of said to me, every year I start showrunning and I say, I'm not going to cry. And then by like the Wednesday, I'm crying in the props department. <laughs> and I'm like, but she's like, mm, that's the kind of showrunner I am. Sorry. And I'm like, yeah, she's, she's kind and she doesn't feel like she has to be the toughest person in the room to get respect. But she also knows her point where she's like, nope, we're not doing that. So
4: the best advice I ever got was don't read the comments, but I don't actually follow that advice. So I, that is I the don't, best, think,
2: I don't the think anybody follows that advice.
4: I can't. I'm like up all night, like hey, click, hey. click, click. Um, the advice that has been the most valuable to me is to, I was kind of sat down and told to value my time and to think about the way that I spend my energy. So like the example that I use is um, I've worked, I worked with an actor once, um, or more than once, or whatever. Um, <laughs> who didn't listen to women. And it didn't matter what I was saying, he didn't listen to women. And I spent so much time trying to get him to respect me and trying to get him to, you know, collaborate with me. And then one day, I was, someone was like, value your time. And I was like, okay. And I grabbed a man and I said, here's what you should say to this actor. He wasn't listening to me, so I had a man tell him the exact same thing. I saved like three hours of fighting, and he listened. <laughs> and now I sort of, I, I hate that, but that's how I'm operating from here on out. If somebody doesn't want to mi- listen to me because I'm a woman, like, fuck you. I'm the boss. If you want to listen to this guy above me, I'll pull in this guy, and I'm going to move on with my day and do something better with it than trying to fix what's broken in you.
6: Maddie. That makes me so sad, but also respect you so much. <laughs> that's so cool. It's
4: like a, a really like a refrain in my life. At
6: this <laughs> <time>. <laughs> um, I you know that's such a difficult question to answer because people give you advice all the time when you're a girl. Um, <laughs> unsolicited. <laughs> yeah. Just they're like you should do that, and I'm like thank you so much for telling me how to it do my never job, fellow to me. actor. <laughs> um you know the piece i don't know who gave me this advice maybe lots of people say this but i think as an actor sometimes you just want to do something or try something and you feel like you have to ask a ton of people before you do it and i think sometimes the best thing you can do is to just show them and ask questions later and they're like oh i like that and you didn't have to go through the whole conversation because the conversation can be scary for somebody like you guys who spends hour and hour, hours and hours putting your life and your heart and your soul into this script, and I wanna change a line. And you're like, ah, uh, you know? Um, so sometimes you gotta show them before you ask. Mm-hmm. All
2: right, so one more, and then we'll take fan questions. If you could remake or reboot any project in science fiction, fantasy, <laughs> genre, I'm doing Roswell,
5: Arizona.
4: I am excited. <laughs> I am excited.
5: No, I'm teasing. I'm, ex- I'm excited about that one though.
4: I mean, I'm so happy right now. Like this is the, the yeah. peak of my career at this moment. So I, uh, I, it's really hard to think of anything else that I would. would is Game want of to Thrones do still on the um, air. <laughs>
2: I'll do that one. Reboot it. it. It'll be ready for a reboot like literally two years after it's done, so it's fine. I'd I'd love to do a reboot of Lost. I don't know what would happen.
5: It's not going to happen, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a legally binding (laughs) contract?
4: I would want to make Looper for TV. I love Oh legal. my God, the time headache so of that fucking writer's the room
3: there. We have like a little tiny bit of time travel on the magicians and so it so makes scary. me homicidal. I oh, love time travel. I I'm so scared. Time I'm so I love scared. Time
2: it's travel. like math,
5: I, it's like math. I'm like, what are the rules? Time travel scares the shit out of me, oh my God. There's
2: this episode of Futurama, it's like actually a multi-part episode and it's like Bender's big score and it's one of my favorite runs of Futurama, but it's a whole thing with like a paradox and time travel don't watch this if you're not sober. Because I, like, my brain broke in a way that I don't think is ever repaired because I'm trying to figure out the math. And I, like, barely do basic math. Don't figure out so the I math. I feel you on the time travel.
5: Don't figure out the math. It's like, don't read yeah. the comments. No, no, no. Or hire
2: somebody that can do math better than you. Yeah. yeah. All right, so what's, what's a project
6: you want to reboot? Though? You know, I, it's not my job to do it. Um, Cast you on the new Buffy. But you know what? <laughs> <laughs> I, it's too much pressure I wouldn't want to also I don't think Josh Whedon would ever do it anyway um, I think Charmed I think they're already doing Charmed yes. yeah aren't they yeah, yeah. They
4: are, they're doing Charmed with a cast of women of color and I think it's fucking awesome yeah
3: yeah what about you Sarah is it cheating to say Black Mirror no, yeah. Well Twilight Zone, so Black Mirror, right? Yeah. Sure. yeah. I love the anthology shows are some of my favorite. The ones where each episode is like a little movie. Yeah. Uh so yeah. I won't say I'll take the entire, you know, flight home to be thinking about like what's my American twist on that, but I might.
7: Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah cool. All right, so let's take
2: some audience questions. Hi. So you talk a lot about how you're going to write women and the back and forth of how, what makes a woman strong. And I hate that fucking term, but anyway. (laughs) Um, How do you, how do you bring to the table how you write men as a foil for that without making them the caricature as well and making it satisfying, but also real?
3: I don't think it's a one or the other situation. First of all, I don't think that you will get much work in the television business if you don't write men well, because most of the, the, I think statistically, most of the main characters on TV and in film are men. So I, I think if you approach a piece of writing and you say to yourself, I'm gonna try to be as honest and as hard as I can be on each of these characters, regardless of gender, then everything will be better.
5: Yeah, I think if you're a good writer, you should be able to write both men and the new gender that we're all discovering, which is women. Um, <laughs> which I've been told is 50% of us, which is amazing. No, but like, honestly, I think, I think if you're a really good writer, you need to, especially in 2018, just write really good human people. Yeah.
6: I guess my question's for the entire panel, but obviously Sarah um, was the showrunner on Supernatural for several years. Um, So there's a potential spinoff of Wayward Daughters and I guess the CW decided not to pick it up. Um, Do you have any tips as to viewers and people in the fandom and trying to get networks to get behind a show that the audience or the viewers would like to see? Would um, like to see these strong female characters that are beautiful, but aren't necessarily Barbie, and they're you know going out and you know saving the world just like Sam and Dean on S- Supernatural.
3: I actually feel like you might know better than I, with your connection <laughs> to you. Just she just rolled her eyes at me. Did you see yep. that? Yep. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I just don't want to answer this question. Um, I've loved the the concept of that show. Uh, I don't know, it's hard for me because I was literally in competition with the show for, you know what I mean? Like, it, I don't know that it like came down to like Roswell or Wayward Daughters, but, or Wayward Sisters. Um, <laughs> I, uh, but so it was, it was one of those things where like, I would have loved to see that on TV. Um, I had questions about why it was a, a largely male operation behind the scenes on that show um i I really you know supernatural's a bit of a boys club, and I think since you know Sarah isn't there anymore um, and I think it would have been nice to have some female representation behind the scenes, and I think that that might have affected some of the decisions that were made at the network um, but i i don't know i don't know how as fans you get to sort of influence or, or guide the network. I think that we're moving closer to the version of that show that is so male and moving closer to a version that that I wish
5: there was a version of supernatural that had like a western element and was kind of like <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was going to say and like to be clear I think the source material for this should have ex- existed before Supernatural. I just think we should put that on the record. Um, but it could be about sisters. People have been hunting demons forever. And they're kicking forever. ass and like and have take, like a couple that people ship called like Wayha. Yeah, yeah, like just like you take all those traditional male roles and you're just like let's just put some ladies in here and like also. That's like, actually
4: the answer to her question. No, the no, answer no, like to your support question sh- is support
5: shows. I think.
4: Yeah. The answer yeah, to your support, question is yeah. if if a certain network isn't listening to you and doesn't make you feel like you're you're heard watch another network
3: yeah. like, your eyeballs are your and, money watch, the, watch yeah. the stuff that people are taking I've heard big there's risks there's really good female driven stuff on sci-fi pardon me I've heard there's really good female-driven stuff. Yeah, yeah That's like a Oh my God. People. There's like a show that did this incredible like supernatural
5: abortion story last year that was like mind-blowing. It was incredible. And like consent with a there's boat? There's one with like, this like female bounty hunter <laughs> yeah. in
2: space. She's yeah. like a female
5: Han Solo. No, just sci-fi. Just, just watch sci-fi.
4: Yeah. I would have like, loved like, to no, watch no, Wayward no. Sisters. Yeah, and I, I think it's disappointing that it didn't get picked up. Um, but I do think there's fucking great female-driven genre, Mm -hmm. and getting more eyeballs on that is going to make people who didn't pick that show up regret it.
2: But, like, and I want to really quickly, before we take another fan question, the state of TV is changing so rapidly. Like, how do you guys maneuver that from where you're sitting,
4: Canada? Is it changing? (laughs) Because I'm doing a show that was on in 1999.
3: (laughs) I just... Decided not to have a hiatus for a while because there's more opportunity, there's more TV being made. I made two TV shows at the same time in the last year. It was awesome. It was a lot of work, but it's awesome. I'm still wearing pants. <laughs> My shoes match. It was okay. Uh, but it's good. And actually, I mean, we're in, uh, you know, fandoms are in a better position than they used to be in that their voices are being heard at all. I mean, TV is sort of engineered to break your heart. Some of what you want won't get on the air. Everything will eventually end and be canceled. It's good practice for life. Except for Supernatural. (laughs) Except for Supernatural. (laughs) I was literally just about to say that. But it's such a just glorious time to be a show creator. Because, you know, when I started in TV, you really had to appeal to a massive number of people with your ideas. And niche ideas are not only more welcome. They're very necessary. They seem to be all the shows that are getting the awards right now. And, uh, and so we're being invited. I think, you know, there's an organic movement towards people's individual experiences. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm so
5: happy to be where I'm at right now. Just like, I love my show. I love my fr- the freedom on my show. I love that my show doesn't have to appeal to everyone, although everyone should watch it. No, but like, <laughs> honestly, I feel like there's so much freedom in that. It's actually like, so I feel like it's a really exciting time to be a creator in television. Just like everybody's looking for a new voice. There's 500 shows. If you have a crazy idea, someone might make it. It's, it's a fun time.
2: I think she's been raising her hand. Do oh, um, so okay. you need a microphone? I work for, I work for the ACLU. Karina and I Hi. work together. Hi, We know uh, each other. Um, I'm wondering, yeah, the panel you were on for us, they're still talking about yeah. it. <laughs> um, what I'm wondering is we, work, we do consult with some shows, Um, for some reason it's been Shondaland for me, Mm -hmm. on subjects from criminal justice to uh, trans to immigration. We're actually doing a panel on immigration today at (laughs) 5. How can we help you get real stories on your shows, stories about real, not necessarily the actors, though it's very important that that happens, but stories about real Muslims, about real trans people, about Former felons or whatever who aren't
4: on your show to be featured because they're other, but because they're just characters. We've um, I mean we've talked about this before, but for the benefit of the room and the panel, I mean I think that getting information out to showrunners and making sure that they know that you guys are available as a resource is really powerful. We've got um, you know we're working on on Roswell with. Uh, characters that are, are Mexican illegal immigrants and um, they are, I said illegal immigrants undocumented Americans <laughs> and the uh, we, we have a, a, we have consultants coming in to talk to us about it because we don't have anybody in the room that um, did you know have that experience so we have we have Latino character uh, writers of course but we don't have anybody that has the experience of Being undocumented in America right now, so even though we, you know, are also working in metaphor, we are also working and talking about real issues and you know real uh, hot button topics of our time. Um, And yeah, just so you guys know, yay! So you is available to you. You want to bring it up here? Yeah, I just wanted to say the magicians
7: along with. I just wanted to say the magicians along with. A good place are my two favorite shows for the past two or three years. And what I like about your show is 99% of the shows I see in movies, I can predict exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> and your show is one of the few shows I don't know what's going to happen from episode to episode, season to season. And I like the naturalistic talking where they're cursing and they're screwing and they're, 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 and they basically don't know what's going on. And it's like, I've never seen that. And, and I grew up with Star Trek as my favorite show. When I started watching when I was four years old in the 60s. And uh, I just wanted to congratulate your show. And I do want to see more of Margot um, Margot does not have enough screen time in my... And she's very much a side character. I'm sick of There's Elliot. More Margo and it's like, <laughs> need to give Margot some more time. And... And the women just don't seem as strong to me as the male characters. It seems more about Elliot and uh, um, um, the other guy. It's like, all I care about is the women mostly. You made a real yeah, impression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. You know, that other, that other dude.
2: There's yeah. <laughs> go right there. Hi. Oh, you guys are so cool. But um, anyways,
6: uh, you guys aren't always getting, like, the biggest budgets for your shows. I was wondering, what do you do creatively to work within your budget in order to produce the cool effects that you do, and the
2: cool things that you want to do with your storylines?
4: Sacrifice other things.
5: (laughs) I was gonna say commit crimes. I I think for me, um, it's taught me that the characters have to be amazing. And that's a lesson that I learned from Buffy. Like, I really was like, nobody cares that you can see the zipper up the back of the werewolf costume because you're crying because <laughs> Buffy has to kill Angel. Spoiler alert. Um,
2: by the but way, I've never it. seen like, Buffy, so thanks for that.
5: Oh, sorry. You're going to love it, though. Um, <laughs> I hear there's a reboot discussion.
2: No, just kidding.
5: Um... Yeah, I just think like a scene, I love the CGI and I love genre, and the genre fans are here for that. But like for me, a scene with the Earp sisters on the couch almost has to be as compelling. Someone could look at Potato in the new season. I don't know what that's about. (laughs) Um, That has to be almost as good as like the dragon budget. I don't even want the dragon budget. Just kidding. I really want them.
3: But if you save, you can get a dragon like... Yeah. We do about a dragon a season.
5: Yeah, sometimes, too, I'm like, can we have a dragon? And they're like, yeah. yes. And I'm like, can we change this person's hair? And they're like, oh, my God, that's $200,000. Like, it's always a surprise what's going to
3: yeah. kill you. But yeah, the, I think your story should be scalable. Yes. And if it's not, that's a good indication you should think a little harder about your story, at least when you're making shows kind of in the realm of all of these panelists. That's just the reality. I will not be sad if I get to make a Game yeah, of Thrones budget true. show. Yeah. Um, that looks really, really fun and also crazy. Really, really crazy. But uh, the, what she said, I agree completely. It's about the, the heart of the story and having characters that you can invest in. And frankly, my favorite scenes in Game of Thrones yeah, are when Cersei's like drunk yeah, in she's a runner or chair, like, <laughs> right? God, damn it. Yeah. No driving, Cersei's the best.
4: Yeah, she's good. She's good. My favorite scenes in Supernatural are two guys sitting on the hood of a car with a beer. Yeah. So, you know, so, I think about I mean, that all the time.
2: But I was going to actually, based on what you guys were saying, so those are bottle episodes, right?
3: Bottle episodes are notoriously expensive. Yeah, they're really
2: hard. Really? It's like, because you have to
5: have things happen on the set, so, like, so many times I've been like, we'll just do a Home Alone episode on the bottle episode where it's like there's a million booby traps and everyone's like we're gonna kill you it takes over to film
3: And yeah. the magicians we really love so do you guys know what bottle episodes are uh, yeah it's a n- well, necessary thing don't. well so you know you get your budget per episode and it adds up to your real budget which is your budget per season and you always go over budget because you need an amazing season opener and you needed that amazing thing in season three and now you're $400,000 over budget you have to make it up Bottle episodes are called that because the bottle are your standing sets. You're gonna try and write a whole episode entirely on your existing sets. You're gonna to try to shoot it quickly, save money. And I particularly enjoy them on The Magicians. We end up having to do one every season. Now you can go try and spot it. But it, it just causes the writers to think really creatively. Last season, they jumped into another timeline of the story. And we redressed all our sets to reflect a completely different history that had happened. That was probably expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it was not cheap. But, <laughs> uh, but it did save money. It did save money. But I, I really like limitations as a TV writer. I think having the biggest, most bloated possible budget doesn't actually help you tell a better story. Um it, it helps to have some boundaries and some walls, so you sort of have a box you can think inside of and then start, like, breaking out of and breaking outside of. But, you know, th- those guidelines, they're helpful.
4: I wrote a, I wrote a young adult novel a few years ago, and in the young adult novel, I, like, blew up New York City. Like, yeah. I like every biblical plague just hit New York City, and I could do whatever the fuck I wanted because it was a book. And then, on you know, you get to the Roswell pilot, and we've got a character who gets really upset, and he's angry, and stuff starts... He's like telekinetic, he's, he is telekinetic, and stuff starts happening. Um, and I'm spoiler. like, at first, I'm like, okay, so the cars, all the cars start crashing, and like, no. <laughs> but what matters is the moment. What matters is he's mad at his brother, and something just has to happen that's, that is an extension of his anger. And in the end, what we got, to, I won't tell you guys what we ended up doing, but it was way, way, way smaller and way cheaper than what I had initially imagined, but it's just as effective because it's not about spectacle. It's about emotion. And uh, I think that that's what you have to to weigh always. And you know, bottle episodes are hard because you're like, okay, they're all trapped in the house. And then you're like a hurricane, a hurricane is what traps in the house. And then you got to pay for a fucking hurricane. (laughs) Plus, like, I think when it comes to budget,
2: you need a really good producer that's yes. gonna know how to get stuff done and keep everything on budget and on schedule because not being on schedule actually ends up costing a lot of money. I don't think people realize that a lot, but that's just what I know from not making TV. <laughs> Me and my unsolicited advice, you like that? But thank you everybody for coming this morning. Thank our lovely panelists. And um, you know, Obviously watch all their shows, obviously read Fangirls, and have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you, guys.
1: Thank you for joining us around the TV campfire. Stay tuned each Thursday for live releases from the festival, in addition to bonus content and exclusive interviews and new original series coming soon.
0: Find us on Twitter and Instagram at ATX Festival, and let us know what you think using our official hashtag, hashtag the TV Campfire. Please rate and subscribe to the TV Campfire on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season 8 of ATX Festival will be June 6th through 9th, 2019. For more information on attending, visit www.atxfestival.com.